that's my general research interest: is to use chemistry to find new ways to treat cancer by activating our own immune system. I call it chemical immunology. Lingying Li is, among many things, a fighter. Whether she's learning a new language, advocating for a place in a research group, or curing cancer, her growth mindset has taken her to great places. In this season two finale of Bringing Chemistry to Life, we speak with another member of Chemical and Engineering News's 2020 Talented 12 about their work and trends in their field. I'm your host, Dr. Paolo Brayuca from Thermo Fisher Scientific. We began by asking Dr. Lee about her first introduction to science as a child. Many of my grandfathers are biochemists, biologists. They studied insects.、Um, so my parents' generation, they didn't have higher education because of the Cultural Revolution,、uh, but they were busy working when I was a child. So my grandfather sometimes picked up、uh, raising me. So、uh, what's more fun than、uh, picking up a bug and、uh, use olive oil? To show the child where the bug breathes, so he would dab the olive oil on the breathing hole of the bug.、Um, that kind of thing. That's that's what piqued my interest in biology, perhaps.、Um, and my mother is just a very inquisitive person as well.、Um, she would, when I say I need a bug,、uh, she was not squeamish about it. She would go find a bug. So you kind of had it in the genes, I and mean, in it was in your family culture to be inquisitive and curious and. Scientific, scientifically minded, somehow, right? That's right. How did you get the opportunity to go and、uh, and and do your PhD in, in the U.S.? That was a lot of planning, a lot of hard work.、Um, so I got into research、um, during my sophomore, and that was a very difficult path because I really wanted to get into this chemical engineering lab. And um, um, that lab just never took、uh, female undergrads.、Um, they said you can't do the heavy lifting that's required. I understand. After joining the lab, I realize、uh, it's very labor intensive. It's not just that; it's also dangerous. If you drop something heavy, you get burned with、uh, re- really strong chemicals. So I understood that. But I was persistent. I had so many times with the door shut in front of my face.、Um, but eventually, I got in and.、Um, So I had three years of undergraduate experience, which got me authorship on six papers. So that resume got me into most of the schools that applied in the United States. How was your experience when you moved over? This gave you something that a lot of your peers that never moved abroad will never have. Absolutely. So when I first moved to University of Wisconsin Madison. And、um, uh, in the chemistry department,、uh, we have to、uh, become teaching assistants. So we have to teach undergraduate students.、Uh, does not matter whether you can speak English or not. I thought I could speak English until I came here, and I thought I could understand English until I came here.、Um, I, I remember that my first class of biochemistry, you know, the the class I wanted to take for so long, I couldn't take in China. I was so excited. I knew ins and outs of that,、um, you know, subject by reading myself. But the first class, the only word I could understand was amino acid. 
So um, that was where my professional English level was at the time. And now uh, I need to do 20 hours of teaching. So I actually remember <laughs> in the morning, 7.30, basically crying on the toilet, thinking, what am I going to do today? Um, so, um, but, but I go in, I brought my energy and that was okay. But my whole well-being was dependent on me being able to speak a new language, which actually helped me when I transitioned from chemistry to biology. It's the same idea. You speak a different language. You're absolutely right. So how long did it take you to get comfortable? Short. Actually, now, you know, I'm whining about it. It took me about three months. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah, half a semester, because I remember I bombed at the midterm exams, but then excelled at the finals, so. Okay, well, it, it, it took me a much longer time. You're obviously m much smarter than I am, and, and, and it's, it's, quite, it's quite evident from, from, what, from what you are doing at the moment and what, what, you're, what you're achieving. So let's, let's now speak about your... Um, you know, move from chemistry to, to, to biology. And, you know, I guess you plan for it again, right? The key is to find a mentor who is willing to support that switch. Um, and my mentor was Laura Kisling, and uh, she is a pioneer in chemical biology. I didn't know that was a term um, until I applied to University of Wisconsin. Chemical biology was big on the banner, and I was intrigued. Um, because I, I liked biology, um, but I'm a chemist. Uh, so what is that? Uh, which is why I, I sharpened my head and squeezed myself into her lab. For her, it is a, a huge risk to take me, who's never taken a biology class. Um, and uh, I haven't even done any organic chemistry. So I have no qualification to become her student. On top of that, I'm an immigrant who didn't speak English. Um, on top of that, um, being an immigrant, you cannot get funded by any, um, you know, NIH funding mechanism. So she had to pay out of her pocket to support someone who has no track record in chemical biology. What, what did she see in you? you ah, <laughs> you will have to ask her. To this day, I'm puzzled. <laughs> <laughs> well, but then you made it, right? Uh, and, and so her, her gamble paid off. And... Uh, and now that you work in an extremely multidisciplinary world, do you think that your chemical engineering background gives you something which is rare or even unique? Yeah, um, it is rare, but it is um, a path that has been taken. So you start with chemicals that have amazing biological functions but with unknown mechanisms. You don't know what pathways they're targeting. And then you figure out what their pathway, the pathways they're targeting. Um, so such examples are, um, for example, a cochicine, a natural product that stops um, cell division, um, binds to microtubules at uh, picomolar concentration. And microtubules were first purified uh, using cochicine columns, and they're named cochicine binding molecules. mTOR, the target of rapamycin, was discovered because of rapamycin. Uh, so that's how, you know, a really interesting molecule can lead you 
to a fascinating new biology. And that's exactly the path I took. And it's interesting because it's a sort of different angle compared to how usually biologists would approach the problem, right? So rather than starting from the, the, the big biological complexity, you start from the relative simplicity of, 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 a, of a chemical compound. That's right. So I think it's time to start speaking about uh, what your research interests are and, and, and what the focus of your research team is. Okay, can you, can, you, can you just give us an introduction and describe it? Because I'm sure you can describe it much better than I can. Ah, thank you. My research interest is how to revolutionize our way of treating cancer. Cancer treatment has experienced three revolutions so far. Um, the first revolution was, of course, toxic compounds, chemo drugs. Um, and they work by killing the fastest growing cells in our body. The second revolution are targeted therapies, um, but drug resistance is a big problem. And the third revolution, which is a true revolution, now we can start to use the word cure, is uh, checkpoint blockade or immunotherapy. So now we're seeing stunning cures in a small subset of cancer patients. And my interest is, can we benefit more cancer patients with even more advanced immunotherapy. So that's my general research interest, is to use chemistry to find new ways to treat cancer by activating our own immune system. I call it chemical immunology. Chemical immunology. I like it. So I, I know where, I, where, where it makes sense to start, but I probably, if you, if you can just try and give us an explanation of the uh, CGMP sting interferon cascade and uh, how it works and how, how, you, how you started working on that and, and, and you know, what it means for you. Yeah, the CGMP sting interferon pathway is a fascinating new pathway. It was so brand new that um, you couldn't possibly uh, flip a textbook and say, I want to study that. So um, exactly like what I was referring to before, I started with an interesting chemical that had interesting properties. Um, and that was a molecule called uh, DMXAA. It was a miracle anti-cancer drug in mice, but failed clinical trials in people for complete lack of efficacy. So when I was a postdoctoral fellow in Tim Mitchison's lab, Tim twisted my arm to study this molecule because I was also studying another different molecule. And he said, no, this molecule um, is uh, more tractable and study this molecule now. And uh, it, it was a few months of um, struggling negotiation with him to switch or not to switch. But finally, after I made up my mind to switch, um, the problem was cracked open. And we knew that, um, now we know, that DMXAA was a miracle anti-cancer drug in mice because it binds and activates mouse sting. It failed in people because it does not bind or activate human sting. So that's when we were like, hmm, what is sting? And what does that have anything to do with cancer? Can you explain us what sting is and, uh, you know, about, about the cascade and, and, why, and why this is interesting? Absolutely. The same year we realized that sting is a target um, of DMXAA, mouse sting is a target of DMXAA, um, and has anti-cancer activity. Sting's natural substrate was discovered to be CGAMP. And that's how concurrent discoveries were happening at the time. 
And why CGAMP was so fascinating? It's a second messenger. It's yet another small molecule I can get my hands on. It is a beautiful molecule. It's cyclic AMP and GMP linked with two phosphodiester bonds. And one of them is a 2,5 phosphodiester bond, which is extremely rare in nature. It only happens in one other second messenger in our innate immune system. No other molecules look like that. It's a beautiful molecule. Um, it's a second messenger that tells us danger. And when Sting was first discovered, it was thought to be an antiviral molecule. So when we have viral infection, we would make CGAMP as a second danger signal or second messenger. And then it would activate STING, which stands for stimulator of interferon genes. And then STING would stimulate interferons, uh, which are very potent antiviral cytokines. But now we realize STING also has anti-cancer activity. How does that work? So this is not my research, but we now know that um, cancer cells cannot um, keep their DNA in the right place. Their DNA is in the cytosol, which presents itself as, as if it's viral infection. So that's why it triggers antiviral response as well. So we now know that cancer cells all make CGAMP the standard signal. Um, so that, is, uh, that explains why this pathway is also anti-cancer. But what really got me into my um, current uh, work was that I thought this danger signal is so important to activate the anti-cancer immunity. What degrades it? Because all second messengers are very short-lived. Um, if we could inhibit its degrader or hydrolase, we could um, you know, make it hyperactive so that we are you know, uh, superhumans um, against cancer. Uh, so that's something that I did, many pioneers in biochemistry did. And when I did that work, I literally was imagining Mary Curie purifying radioactivity out of tar. Um, so I purified the hydrolase um, out of a calf liver. Many, many livers or organs later um, in the cold room that I purified the activity. And by mass back analysis, you can know what that activity is. And that's a protein called EMPP1. Um, so that was um, my major discovery during my postdoc. And we would think that we solved a problem because we identified the enzyme that degrades CGAMP. Let's make inhibitors of this enzyme. And then we can make uh, our anti-cancer immunity stronger. But that actually opened a bigger problem, which is EMPP1 is actually outside the cell, while CGAMP is made inside the cell. So that led to the current picture uh, that I'll tell you that my lab has established, which is that CGAMP um, is made by cancers because they're messed up. They're like viral infections. Um, but then cancer cells don't like CGAMP. It needs to pump it out. So CGAMP is then secreted as a danger signal into um, the tumor microenvironment where it's picked up by our immune cells. So it's actually a danger signal sent from cancer, sensed by immunity, and the EMPP1, this extracellular enzyme, chews up this danger signal to uh, help cancers evade our uh, immunity. So that's why EMPP1 to this day is still a very good target 
uh, for for and to to boost this cell to cell transmission of CGAMP signaling. We hope you're enjoying this episode of bringing chemistry to life. If you're enjoying it, why don't you share it with some of your friends or colleagues? It would really mean a lot to us. Also, stay tuned at the end of the episode for information on how to access content recommendations from our guests, as well as information on how to register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. And now, back to our conversation. So, as always in biology, things are very complicated, right? There's never a single mechanism, there's never a single path, and everything is very intricate and interconnected. So let me step back and see if I understand correctly. So once uh, there is some sort of an exogenous DNA in the cell or some, something that doesn't work in the gene, either coming from a virus or coming from a mutation, there is this sort of stress response, right? Which is the, the C-gump production, isn't it? That's right. And, and, and C-gump has, has this sort of dual role. It, it gets... It interacts internally inside the cells with Sting. So it, am I correct thinking that Sting is, is an intracellular receptor? That's right. But it's also secreted outside and it, and it has a, a, a sort of other function, you know, activating in, in immunity in the area, right? So calling cells from, from the immune system to, to come and generate whatever response is, is, is necessary. So is, is the EMPP1 a normal hydrolase enzyme that is, 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 is present in healthy cells, but it's just overexpressed in cancer cells, a sort of defense mechanism. You're absolutely right. The two parts I want to comment on uh, that I failed to touch upon earlier. Uh, one thing is a cancer can activate its own sting inside its own self, and they can make interferon, which is uh, dangerous, which cause um, immune cells to come and clear it up. So they don't like that. So it's very easy for cancers to rewire their own sting pathway so that their sting pathway doesn't work. But it's much harder for cancers to rewire the host system. That's why once CGAMP is secreted, cancer cells have no control over it other than degrading it with EMPP1. Because once it gets into another whole cell, a cancer can do nothing about that cell. So if the, the interferon cascade can be altered easily, you said, That's does right. this mean the sting is not a very good pharmaceutical target for cancer and you'd rather look elsewhere? Cancers can mutate their own sting, but they can do nothing about the host sting. So even if you target yeah. host sting, because it's a host cell, it is a host immune cell sting you want to activate. So this is a, the beauty of immuno-oncology. Uh, we always activate the host immunity, so drug resistance is um, less likely to occur. It still occurs, but less likely. So what was the light bulb moment? It, was it finding out that EPP1 was extracellular? So what degrade CGAMP was not known, but finding the, the dominant hydrolase, meaning uh, almost the only enzyme that degrades CGAMP, was the best day of my life until I realized it's an extracellular enzyme. And okay. for that reason, the field did not believe ENPP1 was the major enzyme for CGAMP for many years. I understand. Uh, but probably the reason was that 
if if there is an hydrolase out there, it was probably very hard to detect C-gump outside of the cell, wasn't it? That's exactly right. Until we have yeah. developed a really good EMPP1 inhibitor. And so that is the, the, the novel potential pharmaceutical intervention there. So you can prevent the cancer to, to hydrolyze C-gump, uh, so keeping the concentration higher and generating a stronger immune response. Is that what you're doing at the moment? That's exactly what I'm doing, developing the best EMPP1 inhibitors and use it to expose cancer cells to our innate immune system. A second part of your question I failed to answer was, is there anything special about EMPP1? Out of all these um, mechanisms we touched upon, why do we think EMPP1 is so special? Because it's a special enzyme. And because CGAMP is a, a special molecule, it takes a special enzyme to degrade this special molecule. Like I was saying, CGAMP has a very unique 2,5-phosphodiester bond that doesn't exist in other molecules. And EMPP1 is perhaps one of the few, maybe one of two enzymes that can cleave 2,5-phosphodiester bonds. So that's why EMPP1 is the only enzyme that we, we know so far that degrades CGAMP. Um, even though it's a cancer-derived molecule, which I like to call an um, immune checkpoint, even though it's a cancer-derived molecule, and I was just saying, if it's a cancer-derived molecule, drug resistance can happen because cancer can, can change that very easily. But because we have not evolved a second enzyme to even degrade CGAMP yet, Cancer cells cannot just quiet EMPP1 and upregulate a redundant enzyme. So for that reason, um, drug resistance is unlikely to occur with this enzyme. Within the cancer uh, drug development, I think EMPP1 is definitely our best bet so far. Um, but this whole pathway has rich biology, rich implication in diseases, sting is um, implicated in autoimmunity because you want to activate it during viral infection. And we all know that sometimes after viral infection, you have aftermath. Sometimes you have that nagging cough for, for months. So sometimes that leads to autoimmunity. So over yeah. sting overactivation leads to autoimmunity. But now we realize that any viral infected cells or diseased cells can secrete CGAMP and can activate immune response. And once you activate the host immune response, sometimes that uh, response um, uh, go under controlled. Um, the uncontrolled immune response causes autoimmunity because my lab also discovered many mechanisms of how CGAMP activate different host immune cells through different transport mechanisms. Now, all those transporters became potential targets for treating autoimmunity. Because if you know if a certain host cell is responsible for certain autoimmune diseases, you can just shut off that cell by blocking their CGAM transporter. So what you're speaking about here is, is really not just Im immunoactivation, it's really immunomodulation and control. Precisely. Of, co of course, cancer is... <laughs> It's a big target, right? If you can make progress there uh, and be more targeted, that, that would be a, a great achievement. And, and, you know, we are slowly getting there. But uh, you mentioned at the beginning that the cascade, the same cascade is involved also in viral infection. So do you see, do you see a, 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 some potential uh, promises also for treating, you know, as a sort of antiviral therapy 
So um, you, you are touching upon another exciting area um, that uh, we recently contributed a little bit, um, which is uh, we now know that CGAMP um, can be used as a vaccine adjuvant. Oh, because of this uh, immunostimulation properties, right? That's exactly right. Um, we, we know when we make vaccines, we need antibodies. And antibodies are made by B cells, and they need T cells to help. Um, but uh, sting is an innate immune pathway. Uh, but you cannot call in the B cells, the T cells, unless you activate the innate immune system. That's why you need something called adjuvant. You need to boost it. So CGAMP is a great boost. Uh, we're seeing great efficacy. Going into into this research was probably a massive risk at the beginning. You know, you you, you said it. No one believed you. Uh, when when you started thinking that EMPP one, you know, might might have been an extracellular right um, enzyme and, and things like that. So, do, do you like these taking risks? Is it what dri- what drives you here? It does not feel good when you feel like you're alone, right? Um, so it sounds like right. uh, the the risk part is um, isolating, um, but I didn't feel that way. Maybe if people have said, oh, that's great. I would have relaxed and not have the motivation. But sometimes it's, no, you cannot do it. Or no, that can't be right. That make you want to work harder to get to the bottom of things. Um, but that's not all. I think another important thing to think about what's risky, what's not, is um, we always start from something really concrete. We start from discoveries that are concrete. We started from molecules that we know they do something. We didn't know how they did it. So then you figure out how what it does. And um, when I purified EMPP1 out of a calf liver, that was concrete. You have activity in your tube. You know exactly what it does. Um, and then the rest is just puzzle solving. To me, it didn't taste like risk. It's just puzzles. Fighters never like to take it easy, right, and, and play safe. So, so, uh, and and if you couple this with your interest for solving puzzles, which is all good scientists do all the time, yeah, that makes for a perfect recipe for doing what you're doing. What what really really interests you is it is it the the fundamental understanding or is it the potential for what this means in real life applications? Really both. My biggest interest, I think, in research is how our body works and how it fails. And of course, the the curiosity comes from wanting to do something about it. The real life implications are your motivation, but your passion is, is the understanding of it, right? That's right. That's right. If I could not do something about a problem, I don't think about a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. only be concerned about things you can do something about, right? That's exactly right. So as I had um, talked about uh, during my uh, Chemical Engineering News 12, uh, Talented 12 Symposium, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 30. I could do nothing about it. That's not something I can control. So then you just, you know, don't dwell on it. <laughs> it's inspiring, Ling Ying. Uh, and it, it's, it, it's inspiring because obviously not everyone reacts this way. Uh, and the real fighters and people with talent do what, what you do. Uh, hope you're okay now. Yes, 
Yes, nine years out. I'm good. Yes. Good, good. And that's a, that's a nice way to transition to my typical final question. Okay, it's been a great conversation so far. And I always end up my interview with the same question. Uh, you know, you, 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 you've had a quite an interesting life experience so far, uh, challenging, and, you know, you, you fought your way through uh, and, you, and, and you're doing super well. Uh, so I think it might be the right time to stop, look backwards a little bit and think about, you know, what would you say uh, as, as a suggestion to someone who's just starting now, you know, a, a new chemist or, you know, a young scientist? It's always humbling when I'm asked this question because I feel like I'm just figuring things out. Um, <laughs> but maybe I'll say what helps my students and what um, helps my daughter, who's six years old now, is um, have a growth mindset on yourself. Always think that I'm not good at this today, but tomorrow I'll be better. I can't do this today, but tomorrow I can do it. Um, so that way you keep showing up and don't give up. That was Dr. Ling Ying Li, Assistant Professor of Biochemistry at Stanford University and one of Chemical and Engineering News' Talented 12. If you enjoyed this conversation, you're sure to enjoy Dr. Li's book, video, podcast and other content recommendations. Visit thermofisher.com bctl to access these recommendations and also to register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. Thanks for joining us for this final Season 2 episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. I hope you have enjoyed this season as much as I did. To keep in touch and find out about new episodes from our team at Thermo Fisher Scientific, visit thermofisher.com chemicals and be sure to watch your podcast feed in the coming months. This episode was produced by Matt Ferris, Matthew Stock and Emma Jean Weinstein 